amongst many others, received a lot of comfort from, especially when I was a younger person. It's this verse. It's found in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that isn't common to man. For God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your strength, but will, with the temptation, provide the way of escape. So anyone apart from me, as you sit there, receives a great deal of comfort from that. Basically, no test or trial or temptation that comes your way is going to be too powerful for you. But if you're a Christian, God will not let you be tempted beyond your strength, but will, with that trial, with that temptation, provide a way of escape. There's always, if you're in that deep valley, and the enemies are surrounding you, you can't seem to get any way out, there's always a path up the side of the valley that will get you out of that difficult, difficult time. <clears throat> Jesus has promised that. I found that a great, great comfort when I was younger, but I found out that as I've gotten older, temptations don't stop coming my way. Has anybody found that way? However long you've been on the road, you still get tempted. You still have trials. You still have difficulty. The word temptation and trial comes very, very often interrelated there. So that no temptation has overtaken you. Now that particular verse comes at the end uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 of a little bit of teaching about history. Now I don't know what your opinion of history is. I know when I was in school I didn't particularly enjoy history but I've now found out that to learn a little bit from history does us good. Um, my, my daughter's here and she's an RE teacher. Uh, and I could use her and say it happened to her, but that wouldn't be quite true. There's the, um, the, the RE teacher who was teaching a group of children in school, and she asked the question, who, brought, who knocked the walls of Jericho down? And she waited for an answer. Who, who, who knocked the walls of Jericho down? And there wasn't any answer. Well, come on, I need an answer. Who knocked the walls of Jericho down? And a little boy at the back put his hand up and says, excuse me, I don't know, but it wasn't me. <laughs> and of course she laughed at that. She thought that was really quite funny. So she went to the head teacher of the school in the break and said, you wouldn't believe what's happened to me in the classroom. I asked who knocked the walls of Jerry Doe down and nobody knew. So a little boy put his hand up and says, it wasn't me. It was little Johnny. And the head teacher says, well, I know little Johnny and his family and I know he wouldn't have done it. So the teacher explained to the head teacher and said, no, no, it's the story in the Bible. And the head teacher, oh, of course it is. And she laughed and what have you. As it happened, an Ofsted inspector was coming in that particular day. And so the head teacher explained to the Ofsted RE inspector, we had something really funny happen in our class. One of the teachers said, who knocked the walls of Jericho down? Little Johnny said, it wasn't me. And the offset inspector said, well, I'll tell you, we've got a bit of money in the a contingency fund. We, we can get the wall built up. It's okay. <laughs> now, I use that as an illustration because basically our level of Bible knowledge and Bible history sometimes, sometimes isn't what it should be. And if we had a... Uh, there are some folks who've got this idea, historically, Marcion was, a, the, I think, the first theologian, had brought, dropped it into people's ideas, uh, in minds, that the God of the Old Testament was different from the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was judgmental, slaughtered people, no grace there, awful, awful God. The God of the New Testament, full of grace and forgiveness and what have you. And there came this very, very bad theological, um, uh, and there's some theologians here who will tell me all about it, I'm quite sure. But um, that 
that changed the idea that there, there was two gods, one of the Old Testament, very judgmental, one of the New Testament. That's not true. The God of the New Testament is exactly the same as the Old, Old Testament. In actual fact, you will find as much wrath from the voice of God in the New Testament as in the Old Testament, especially when you start coming with me through the book of Revelation. My God is a consuming fire is a verse that's found in the Old and the New Testament. And we mustn't forget that. A little bit of history doesn't hurt any of us. Oliver Cromwell was planning to educate his son Richard and one of the little phrases that's come down in history says, I would have him learn a little history. And what we're going to find now in our studies, for those of you who are here for uh, the first time, we're delighted to have you here. We're going through a series in a little book in the book of Jude, right at the end of the Bible, book of, just before the book of Revelation. <clears throat> and we're going to find that Jude, from here on in, and we'll read it in a little while, is going to give us some historical illustrations pulling from the Old Testament to try and help us to understand today's spiritual truth. So, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Jude now, and we're going to read, that's right, look at the book of Revelation, and then it's the one back from there, and we're going to look at one of these illustrations that Jude is going to ask us to consider. And from this illustration... This verse about no temptation comes from this illustration. So you'll understand where I'm pulling all this together. This verse here is going to come not directly from Jude, but from the story that he's going to remind us of. So the book of Jude, last book but one in the Bible, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Just put up the next slide. Lessons from the book of Jude. This is what we've looked at. Okay, recapping verse one. Who wrote... The letter, Jude, the brother of James. His humility was, was brought out there. It says, listen, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. He was the brother. He was a brother of James, the pastor in the New Testament uh, Jerusalem church. But it, and, and James was a brother of Jesus, as was Judas. Um, Jesus had four brothers. He doesn't say, I'm a brother of Jesus. He says, I'm just a brother of James. And I'm a servant of Jesus. And a brother of James. And then we're going to see one of the, there's ten groups of three. He likes his trilogies in Jude. And he's going to give us the first trilogy to those who have been called, who are loved by God, the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. So there it is, the first trilogy, called, loved, and kept. And each requires a response from us. We looked at that on our first study. The second study, we looked at verse 2. The greeting that um, Jude gives to his um, his listeners or his readers. And it's very important what we say to people. Your tongue has got the power of life and death, and I know I'm repeating myself, but when you need to speak positive things, not just over our kids. Dear God, the kids have been grown up and says, you are a mistake, or you're not as good as your sister, or you're useless. How terrible to say those things over our kids. But there are some people in church who have had words spoken over them who have now been affected from their life. You've been treated badly and hurt people hurt people. Did you get that? Hurt people hurt people. You've been hurt in your childhood. You've been spoken words over. Maybe even in church someone has said something negative over you and you've received that and they say sticks and stones will break my bones and names will never hurt you. Load of rubbish! Words have more power than anything. And I implore you, if you've had negative words spoken into your life, in the name of Jesus, reject them. Come and get prayed for if necessary. I've had people, I've buried people 
who've gone to their grave with words spoken over them by their father or their mother, never been properly delivered from those words. And here Jude is going to speak positive words. Mercy over your life. Peace of God over your life. The love of God floods you. Let's have and receive those positive words. And that was a digression, but I think somebody needed to hear that. And so we read on. Verse 3, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our Lord and a sovereign and Lord. Verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you. Most of what we preach from, from the pulpit is reminders of stuff that you already know. Sometimes you'll get new revelation, but by and large, I'm here to remind you of spiritual truth that maybe you've heard in the past. And here we're going to do this, and Jude is going to remind us of certain things. I want to remind you that the Lord, and here he's going to go into three of his, uh, another one of his triplets, and he's going to mention three Old Testament incidences that will help us to learn one spiritual truth this morning. And because our time, I knew was going to be a lot of it taken up with street pastors, I make no apology for doing that. It's a great ministry, and if you want to get involved with street pastors, see Bob at the end of it. You, you have to be trained, and it'll take you some time, but thank God for the work that's going on outside of these four walls by members of our church. But here it says, there's three things. I'm just going to mention the first. And look, look, look what he says here. I want to remind you, this is the first illustration, that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. A simple reminder of one, no, not probably one, the greatest event in the Jewish history. The deliverance from Egypt and eventually through the wilderness into the promised land. Now you're going to find that in the Old Testament. You can go and look it up in Exodus and Numbers and various other places. But the New Testament writers realised the spiritual truth that you could get from that particular story was so valuable that Paul writes about it in Corinthians. The writer to Hebrews writes about it. He says, listen, I'm going to remind you of something that I know you already know, but you need to be reminded of this. Oh, by the way, I'll just finish that slide. Grace isn't mentioned in the greeting there because the problem was that grace was going to be slightly perverted. And one of the things that was happening is, oh, you're okay, you can live how you like. As long as you're saved, you're going to get to heaven. Well, Paul is going to write in Corinthians, listen, I want you to be reminded of one certain thing. Two and a half million people left Egypt. But it was only two that got through. Two and a half million people. The rest of them died in the wilderness. So here's the lesson. Be careful then. Don't just assume that the grace of God, I can live how I like, because God will forgive me, that's his trade. I think that was Heine, the, the, the French philosopher. God will forgive me. Don't matter how, it doesn't matter, as long as I attend church, pay my tithes and do my religious bit, I can live how I like from Monday to Saturday. Well, Judas is going to say, no, that's not true. 
And he's going to give us three illustrations that remind us of the grave mistake that some, some have made. He's going to talk about angels and he's going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's now, uh, this one here, he's going to talk about the children of Israel. All of them left and they all had a great deliverance. In fact, Paul writes about it. Can you turn over to the place that I already have shown you, 1 Corinthians 10, and we'll, we will put that lovely verse about temptation in context. And I make no apology for, for reading more of the Bible, and it's the most inspired bit of what you're going to hear this morning. And so, Paul in Corinthians is going to speak to a Corinthians church which was using all the spiritual gifts that was very vibrant, very Pentecostal, but they were messing up in one or two areas, and it was in their personal behaviour, really. So he, like Jude, uses this as an illustration. Verse 1 of chapter 10, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. That's the cloud that, 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 that guided the children of Israel as part, in, the, in the wilderness. And they all passed through the, the Red Sea, which was their deliverance. They were all baptised into Moses, which is a way of saying, well, listen, they were all together with Moses, and, and in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate of the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Remember the story? The manna that had come down from heaven? For 40 years I had this manna? My goodness. They moaned at that manna, didn't they? They cooked it everywhere they could. They fried it, they boiled it, they, 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 they scrambled it. They, they, what else can you do with the food? They, they, yes, they did that as well. Whatever it is, they, they, any way that you could cook manna, those women, and I suppose the women were doing the cooking back then, they just, but they got fed up with the manna. And here, Paul is going to say, listen, you all went through that Red Sea. You all had the cloud protecting you from the Egyptians and giving you guidance. You all were baptised. And basically he's saying, speaking to the Christians now, he's saying, listen, you've all been baptised in water. If you haven't, by the way, I recommend that you consider the biblical teaching about baptism in water. And we will be glad to baptise you. We have a baptismal service in about five weeks' time. But they've all baptised. They've all had the supernatural provision of the bread of life. They all took part of the bread of life and I suppose you could compare that with the, the sacraments, the breaking of the bread and the wine and what have you. They all engaged in that. But Paul is going to say, listen, some of them never got through. So they drank from the spiritual rock and we know that that was Jesus. Wherever they were in the wilderness, there was this rock that was gushing forth with water and we're told very clearly that that was Jesus. How weird is that? But that's the truth that accompanied them, then that, 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 that rock was Christ, who is Paul telling us that. Nevertheless, this is the warning, nevertheless God was not pleased with most of them, their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as an example, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And then Paul lists four things that they did in the wilderness that took their eyes off of Jesus. And in a little while, I'll, I'll just recap those four. But let me carry on the reading so we get to the verse about temptation. The four areas of temptation that they fell to, which meant that they didn't reach the promised land. Do not, number one, be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up in, to indulge in pagan reverie. We should not commit sexual immorality, the second thing, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did. And they were killed by snakes. 
And do not grumble. Fancy putting the fourth thing, grumbling, in the same context as immorality and, and idolatry. But he says, don't grumble, as some of them did. And they were killed by the destroying angel. And then these last couple of verses that link in this temptation verse. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on which the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall because no temptation has seized you or overtaken you except that what is common to man. And God is faithful, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up against it. Lord, I pray again for anyone who is feeling the pressure of temptation that is dragging them down. And Lord, they feel as if there's no way out of this. There's no way out of this depression. There's no way out of this this test, this trial. There's no way out of this severe temptation that they're going through. And I'm praying, oh God, that your word, whether they hear anything else that I say, your word will now just bring comfort, fortitude in in the area of trial that will enable them to realise, Lord, that yes, there is always a way out because God's grace is always sufficient for every circumstance. Bless you, Jesus. So let's just continue, just to recap in, in Jude, which is where we're studying. Remember, we looked at Jude as being a small letter and a strange letter and a suspect letter and a severe letter and a sharp letter. And you can just click on those buttons, Pauline. Okay. And we reminded ourselves as a result of that it will be easy for us not to study the book of Jude because it's got some concepts in it that are a little bit odd. We're, we haven't hit one yet, but we will next week when we start talking about these angels and what was that was all about. But it's not, is it next week whenever we, we're studying it? But the Old Testament reminders, though you already know all this, I want to remind you. And I need to ask you as I ask myself, is there anything that I need to be reminded of. Old Testament reminders. I say, thank God for remembrance. Um, And I know that some of you here are dealing with um, relatives, as is Susan. We have our in-laws, my my, my father and mother-in-law staying with us this this next few days. And uh, he's 80... He's 80. He's 80 old. He's 80, right. And, uh, you know, he can still play cards. I can still win money off him. Um, uh, you know, so he's, he's got his marbles, but his short-term memory is gone. So he'll say the same things over again and again. How many of that can really wind you up? No, you don't know, because you've not been there. If you have, and I know that some of you have, it is the real trial. It's the real trial. I want to say, thank God for memory. Someone say, thank God for my memory. Thank God for my memory, Lord. Do this in remembrance of me. We're not having communion this morning, but never forget what Jesus has done for you. The Bible's full of illustrations. I could give you quite a few, but I'll just give you a couple of instances. Remembrance is so important. Remember God in times of trouble, and Jonah, of course, was in times of trouble out of his own disobedience. He finds himself in whale belly chapel with seaweed round the top of his head because he's disobeyed God. And while he's in the trial, he remembers God. Anybody apart from me remembered God when you were in time of trouble? And you said, God, forgive me for having to go through this trial so that you could wake me up 
to help me remember. Jonah remembered God in times of trouble. Ecclesiastes 12.1, you sure know you younger, younger people, and they've all left, many of them have left us. Remember your Creator in your, in your youth. Is anybody apart from me glad that God got you when you were young? All those wasted years, but I want to tell you, if you have wasted years, I'm glad for that verse, and it comes from... Um, it comes from the Bible. <laughs> where it says something about locusts, he'll give you back the, the years that your locusts have eaten. Where's it from? Jonah. Joel. Joel, I knew it was Joel. Joel, it's from Joel. I, Joel, that's right. He'll give you back the years that the locusts have eaten. But better than that, let's pray that we remember God in our youth. Remember God in the night season, Psalm 63 and verse 6, when you can't sleep. How many times has God woken me up and I couldn't sleep? And God says, will you just recognise I've woken you up? It wasn't the devil. Because I actually actually like your company, Barry. Maybe you like my company. I don't like my company at times. That's, That's totally immaterial whether you like your company. I like your company. And sometimes the only time I can get you to sit still and listen to me is if I wake you up in the night. Because you're so jolly busy during the day. Is anybody nodding there with any kind of recognition of of what I'm talking about? Be still. Be still for a little while, will you? Because I enjoy your company. Yes, I like it when you pray and when you read my Bible or have you, but I just enjoy your company. Next time he wakes you up in the night, maybe it could be because God wants to spend a little time with you. Be still in the battles of life, Nehemiah 4.14. You'll understand that's a sermon. If you have a concordance, anyone could go on there and find another dozen times where we're told to remember God. Remember God. A little digression. But here they are, deliverance from Egypt. And Jude is going to say, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. What a verse. Two and a half million people delivered out of Egypt and destroyed those who did not believe. All of them, but two of them. Lessons. Continuing faith in Jesus Christ. Eleven days it should have taken them from Egypt to the Promised Land, but instead it takes them 14,549 days wandering around the wilderness. And they were told to believe, which of course is a present continuous tense. It's something that you continue. Don't just start and say, well, I've given my life to Jesus, but God wants a relationship with you so that day by day you are walking with a, a, a sense of faith and belief. Continue in the faith. What a huge, huge lesson to be learning. And here we've got this story of the cloud and the Red Sea, and the manna, and the water from the rock, and then the serpent which becomes an idol, and all of those lessons from the Old Testament are all lessons to teach us that we've got to hang in there and not get so presumptuous on God that says, well, it really does not matter whether I consult God when I've walked out of this church, I've done my pennyworth, I've done my religious bit, I can live how I like, which is what was happening when Jude was writing this letter. God will forgive me, it doesn't matter. But Jesus said, no, it does matter. I want you to believe and I want you to go on believing. Now, In the last five minutes that I've got, I wonder if I can just pick out from 1 Corinthians 10 the four things that Paul reminds us of that was happening in the wilderness 
that God says, these are the things I want you to be careful of. And with the first reading, you might think, well, they actually don't refer to me because we know that when Moses went up on the mountaintop, the, the, the folks down in the valley there made a golden calf and they started worshipping the golden calf. And you think, well, that, that idolatry, that doesn't really refer to us, does it? I mean, we don't make golden calves anymore. Well, it really depends on how you define idolatry. really depends on how you define worship of God. Let me give you an alternative, almost a definition. If a man's God is that to which he gives all his time and thought and energy, let me repeat that. If a man's God is what he gives all of his time and thought and energy, would it not be true to say that we worship idols in our society today? Now please, there's someone in church this morning who's had a great experience this last week. And I'm not actually knocking them because I enjoy the experience that they had. They went for the first time to watch the greatest team in the world. Manchester United. Do I get any, any response here? No? Maybe, oh no, obviously no, no response, all right. Okay, they were given a ticket to go and watch the football team, Manchester United. I remember the first time I went. It was a religious experience. There can be no doubt about it. It was a religious experience. It was, and, and forgive me, I've been a born-again Christian for many years. It's quite a few years back now. So, so I trembled on the, on the terraces. The chanting, the singing, the enthusiasm, the anticipation, every seat packed. It was a religious experience. There can be no doubt about it. Now, I'm not, not, not knocking going to see football. I enjoy that. That's not the point of this that I'm trying to make out. But for some people, there's no question about it. That was their church. They pay their tithes because that season ticket is blessed expensive. They invest, and I actually took, they're much older now, but I actually took with me my two, um, what are they called? Nephews. Right. Nephews. I'm, uh, sorry, I, I normally ask my wife, but Esther's there, so yes. I couldn't remember. They're relatives anyway. And back then, the wallpaper was uh, Manchester United. The bed covering was Manchester United. All the posters weren't, you know, the normal posters that young men have, but they were, they were Manchester United stars. You know, and back then it was Cantona. Remember, anybody remember? Ooh, ah, Cantona. Oh, you do, you see, you do know. All right. And I remember seeing Cantona back then and what have you, and I thought, is it these people, nothing when we go into football, please, but what the point I'm making, is there anything in my life that could be considered in this definition? I'm giving all my time to it, all my thought, all my energy. How much time does God get in my week? How much time does my energy, of my energy does, does, does God get? How much thought do I give to spending time in his word? Because anything that I'm immersing myself in, and of course I could give a nice clever long list of, folks who, uh, of things that people immerse themselves in, can be, not always, but can be, could be under that definition of idol. In the olden days we used to joke about Sunday morning and how folks would be, that would be the time when they polish and clean their car. Now, of course, Sunday is as busy in the shops and in the garden centres as any other day. In fact, it's the busiest day. 
So has materialism become our idol? I throw it out to you. It seems irrelevant, but let me say I personally believe that idolatry is live and well in the Western civilization. Live and well. And Paul said, listen, learn the lesson. I'm speaking to you. Those who are, uh, do not be idolaters, as some were. They sat down and ate and drank and got up and indulged in pagan revelry. Well, that may not be the case, but certainly. The second thing, and I'll just throw this out to you now, immorality. It doesn't need much for me to tell you about that. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And the truth is, if you've got a wrong idea of God, and many do have a wrong idea of God, if, if he's not the loving father who wants to help you and encourage you so that you overcome temptation, then very often what, you'll have a wrong idea of people and, and life and you'll have a wrong idea of your body. In those days there was two things that, you, that, that was relevant and, and uh, happening in the New Testament. Some folks had the wrong idea of their body in the sense that they had to beat it up and so they, could, they had to fast and they, and they treated their body with... with they just... They just didn't think the body was... was uh, uh, God was interested in the body. So they just beat it up. And others thought, well, God doesn't care about the body, so I can indulge in it, and I can have whatever sexual immorality I want, I can indulge in it with any kind of lust, food, or whatever. And all the stuff that God has given us in the confines of his word that are good for our body, they were in overindulging in. If I've got a wrong idea of God, I'll have a wrong idea of me, and a wrong idea of life, and a wrong idea of my body. Thank God that God made sex and not that bloke who's just died, um, the, the magazine bloke. If you read your news, um, it wasn't Playboy, the, 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 the other uh, penthouse. Oh, you read the news. Or you read penthouse, I don't know. <laughs> that was good. What about you, David? <laughs> Elder David. Oh, right. Thank you for being up to date. <laughs> <laughs> you see, it's so easy to catch on this. <laughs> oh dear. I smile, but thank God he has put the, he's put the rule book down for us. Not a rule to make us miserable. But sex is still best within the confines of a completely uh, committed relationship. Marriage. And it's still best between a man and a woman. Because God said that. And we, we smile, but let me tell you this. If God's put it, would you like me to baptise that phone for you? Anybody? Um, if God's put it in the book, it's best for us. Somebody agree with that, please. If it's in this book, it's good for us. So sexual immorality, I said I was going to be quick. Let me say, the, the last two things here. Uh, the, I've lost my notes. Here we are. Unbelief, testing God, putting God to the test. But then there's this grumbling. And you think, how could possibly grumbling be in that list? But they grumbled against Moses, they grumbled against God, they grumbled against his provision, and, and, and God said, listen, they grumbled at their diet and what have you. Materialism, materialism leads to grumbling. And that's why we say, don't let materialism get hold of you. You can own as much as you like or able to, but don't let it get hold of you because it will lead to grumbling because you haven't got enough, because we've never got enough. We've never got enough. Having said all that, Here's the comfort. Go back to the first slide, if it's possible for us. I don't know whether you can do that. Go back to slide number one. That verse starts, uh, the, the verse before this, verse 12 says, He that thinks he stands, take heed lest you fall. 
If you think you've got no problem with immorality, if you think you've got no problem with idolatry or no problem with putting God to the test or no problem with grumbling, he that thinks he'd stand, take heed lest you fall. And this is a warning. This is a, this is a reminder from an Old Testament story. Listen, wise up, smell the coffee. You are as susceptible as any other human being. In fact, I'll tell you this. When you're spiritually high and you've got a great, winning great victories for God, very often that is your time of greatest weakness. It was when Elijah was winning all the battles against the false gods. He's then running for his life. There is no time when I need to let down my guard. There's every day I need to put on the spiritual armour, recognising that the devil's smart enough to get me at my time of weakness or my time of strength. But always remember this. No temptation has overtaken you. That isn't common to the rest of us in this room. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tested beyond your strength. But will always, always give you a route out of that steep valley so that you can overcome. Musicians, will you join me, please? Have you got a song relevant to us, John, that you could lead us?